Hey everyone, welcome to At Altitude. So we're going to start off today by talking about our old friend, the OODA loop. I know you're all thinking, for Pete's sake, enough with the OODA loop. Every episode, it's OODA loop this and OODA loop that. But that is because John Boyd's concept of success in air combat by the efficient process of observing, orienting, deciding, and acting is fundamentally key to our very survival in everyday life. Your parents were teaching you how to use the OODA loop as soon as you began venturing outside the safety of your own home on your own two little feet. Look both ways before crossing the street. The process of safely crossing a busy street necessitates the successful execution of your own personal OODA loop. Observe where the cars are and the distance you need to cover to reach the other side. Then orient yourself in relation to where those cars are which way they're moving, and how fast. Then decide if it's safe to cross or not. And then finally, you have to act decisively and quickly cross or wait. Any breakdown or hesitation in this process can lead to an ambulance ride to the hospital or worse. While the quick and efficient execution of an OODA loop applies to everything from crossing the street to success in business, to further illustrate, let's stick to a military application. There are many examples throughout military history of commanders that prevailed, despite their forces, on paper, being at a disadvantage, because they were able to complete their OODA loop faster than their adversary. Now, because I'm a World War II history guy, let's go to Europe. It's May of 1940. And for effect, let's see how not having decision advantage can lead to defeat. It's the Battle of France an unmitigated disaster for the Allies that was not supposed to have happened because, on paper, the French military was larger and technologically superior to its German enemy. Testifying to France's advantage was a large number of S-35s, one of the best tanks in the world in 1940. The S-35 and the heavier B-1 were more heavily armed and armored and much more plentiful than the equivalent German tanks, most of them light Panzer 1s and 2s. The legendary and fearsome Tigers and Panthers were not fielded until later in the war. So hundreds of these superior S-35s and B-1s went into action against the invading Germans in May of 1940, yet France fell in just six weeks. How could this possibly have happened? Well, there were a multitude of reasons. The French were still using static tactics and strategy from the First World War, and the Germans excelled in organization and maneuver warfare, granting their field commanders more flexibility and initiative. But when it came to those armored units, the Wehrmacht was utilizing a specific technology the French tankers lacked, the radio. A radio in every tank was the means by which information about the ever-changing battle space gathered by primitive sensors, in this case, crewmen's eyeballs, could be quickly reported up to the battalion commander's tank. The battalion commander would take this information, form a decision on how to further prosecute the battle, and then pass orders back down to his tanks via that same radio network. The French tankers had no radios. Thus, they had no way to coordinate or communicate information about the battle space to other tanks or to infantry commanders. The Germans could observe and understand the battle, minute to minute, much better than the French, and then they could act quickly on what they knew. 
The radios and German tanks were not the only reason why they swiftly prevailed in France, but the decision advantage supplied by the radio had a huge impact. So why the history lesson? Imagine that same decision advantage on a global level, across all domains and available to every commander almost instantaneously. Sensors of all types on all sorts of platforms instantaneously uploading data, computers collating that data and making recommendations to commanders who then take decision in minutes, if not seconds, and send their forces into action. This is the concept of joint all-domain command and control, or JADC2, making the process of observing, orienting, deciding, and acting much quicker than that of our adversary, and doing it in a coordinated fashion across land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace, simultaneously. So how do we achieve that? What is the framework that will facilitate that decision advantage? From the Air Force perspective, that would be the development of technology, hardware, and software to build out the Advanced Battle Management System, or ABMS. Recently, Airman Magazine's Andrew Breeze sat down with Brigadier General Jeffrey D. Valencia, Director, Joint Force Integration, Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy, Integration, and Requirements, to discuss the speed, strength, agility, and resilience of an interconnected military, and the decision advantage and deterrence value that ABMS will provide the U.S. and its allies. So let's listen as General Valencia describes how ABMS will enable a tighter OODA loop for U.S. and allied military commanders across the globe. I'm Joe Eddins. And you are at Altitude. In layman's terms, um, can you uh, tell me what JADC2 is and what ABMS is and why they're important? Kind of like an introduction or rollout of what those two... Yeah, you bet. Um, so JADC2 and ABMS is the Air Force's contribution to JADC2. So JADC2, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, is the construct to deliver decision advantage to the warfighter. The character of war has changed. As the United States comes out of shifting our focus from fighting the violent extremist organizations to global power competition, such as that, the challenges by Russia and China, so too has the nature or the character of war. What that means is it's no longer about who can mass the forces. It's really about who can sense their environment, make sense of their environment, and take an action faster than their opponent. And victory is going to come to the side that can decide that can accelerate that kill chain. We call that decision advantage. Cool. So uh, you're a little bit new stepping into this uh, situation, and uh, so maybe you can tell me about uh, how things have changed and uh, how what your role is now, and how you are uh, plugging into uh, other functions of the Air Force. So I am new coming into the organization, and I was brought in specifically as a representative of the warfighting element to create decision advantage within advanced battle management system. Where we have been is we were largely at the experimentation conceptual level of this idea that we can better connect the parts of the warfighting machine in order to accelerate decision making out in the field. 
Through a series of experimentations, we've demonstrated that it is possible. My role now is to function as the product manager, or in other words, the overall manager of how we're going to build out this connection of warfighting systems to deliver decision advantage to the warfighter as quickly as possible. Great. Uh, in terms of data flow and utilization at the pointy end of the spear, where is the warfighter now and where should they be? So today, the warfighter largely has a man in virtually every step of the loop of what we call the kill chain. The kill chain begins with our ability to sense our environment. It all works all the way through our decision. And then if we take action in response to a change in our environment, and then the assessment. Today, all along that pathway, there's a man in the loop. Oftentimes, an airman is sitting at a terminal that's synthesizing information that comes from one sensor or intelligence source from one chat room and types it into another chat room of which an airman somewhere else in the globe is hopefully staring at that chat at the right time to pull that right needle out of the haystack in order to feed it to decision maker to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Today, that process is not defensible and it is not fast enough if we're gonna succeed in global power competition. Where we are going is we're gonna identify ways in which we can take that same information and we can move it through the system machine to machine, so an automated process, and we can write the advanced algorithms to help to make sense or otherwise connect dots in a way that maybe weren't connected in the past so that when that information shows up to the decision maker, they're able to make a highly informed and fast decision. Connecting dots is uh, the name of the game for the future, right? It is all about connecting dots. Yeah. Oftentimes, our adversaries work below the noise level, meaning a lot of their activities are difficult to connect what they could mean within the whole. We've already demonstrated through some very um, uh, commercially available off-the-shelf technologies that we can focus the data collection in a way that starts to connect those dots below the threshold that might indicate the intent of an adversary. Today, while we talk about it being speed, at the end of the day, what we talk about is how do we avoid conflict? We don't want to go to war. And we can oftentimes deter war if we understand our adversary's intentions early. And then we can take a proactive measure in order to deter them so that they don't feel as though they have a military advantage. Um, so uh, how does JADC2 and ABMS support the goals of the National Defense Strategy? Well, the, go the goals of National Defense Strategy are clearly this. We have to work as a globally integrated force. And we can no longer operate within geographic, domain, or organizational boundaries. What JADC2 advances and what ABMS enables is a connection and understanding across the whole of the globe without consideration to seams so that the total force, meaning all 11 combatant commands, can be operating off of the same level of understanding. They can plan together, and then they can execute together. You know, while a lot of people, or just myself in, in included, is like when I see JADC2 and ABS like matched together right there, I get confused which one's first. And like, uh, so ABMS is like the platform, and JADC2 is uh, a system within the platform. Right. It's, it's a great question that you're asking because a lot of people are confused because our understanding has emerged and evolved over time. 
So just to lay it flat, JADC2 is the joint forces construct on how to achieve decision advantage, of which ABMS is the Air Force's contribution to create decision advantage, meaning JADC2 is the idea, ABMS are the tools to enable it. But ABMS is not just a platform. In fact, it's many things. Oftentimes, it's changes in policies. It's changes in procedures. Often, we're finding that it's changes in software and how we code our sensors and how we code our command and control functions. It's changes in our people. Our people, today is the majority of the force today grew up in the digital age. But those of us, and I include myself as part of the generation, I did not. It's how do we leverage people who can understand in a data-saturated world how to process and then take advantage of the data that's made available to them. So what we're avoiding is the notion that ABMS is pigeonholed into one, but it's a lot of different tools that we're going to deliver to the joint force to enable decision advantage. So I remember AFA golfing talking about Uber for the Air Force. That's right. Was he talking about ABMS? That's right. That's right. So there's a lot of commercial illustrations that suggest that the technology is already there. And so one of the things, and when General Goldfein talked about Uber, or when you hear illustrations such as that, it's this idea that you can put in algorithms to understand otherwise massive amounts of data in a way that allows you to be more responsive to whatever your mission may be. In Uber's case, to pick up the right rider and take him to the right destination. In our case, it's to deter, and if we're unsuccessful, to defeat our adversaries. That's great. So in the beginning, the OODA loop concept was more about a set of uh, eyeballs looking out of the canopy, seeing the enemy first and then engaging quickly. Can you explain that concept and how it will still hold with the eyeballs replacing by sensors and engagement vectors encompassing all domains, uh, included cyber? You bet. Um, we break it down into three very broad steps. We have to be able to sense, we have to be able to make sense, and we need to be able to act. So sense. Sense comes from uh, largely the various sensors that we have, everything from national level assets to tactical assets. For example, traditionally, we start thinking about sense sensors. We think about UAVs with cameras on them that can pipe the information back. But it's far more sophisticated than just a UAV flying over a battle space. For instance, it's an F-35 that is flying within contested airspace that is collecting a tremendous amount of intelligence information that, frankly, that information may not be valuable to that F-35 pilot to execute their mission, but that information is extraordinarily valuable to another partner or ally. So being able to sense the environment is incredibly important. Next, we have to be able to take that sensing data and move it to a place that we can process it to add meaning or make sense of that data. Making sense of the data is really tailor-made to the need of that decision maker. And as they process that data in order to extract the meaning of it, they then need the ability to direct the action. This is what's changing from the Department of Defense and where we have been to where we are, is we've largely left the service member to be the totality of that process. Today, we're learning things like um, data standards. We're learning about data scientists. We're learning about systems engineering. We're adding some terms and some skills to our vernacular that haven't been inherent in warfighting up to today. 
Data is the new oil. Data is the lifeblood of our economies. It's the lifeblood of our social lives. And without a doubt, data is the lifeblood of our victory. So how is the modern battle space different in terms of observe, orientate, and decide and act? Really, and, and we hit to it earlier, it's about speed. And, and today, you can't wait to collect all available information, sit down and try to um, assemble some sort of board or bureau or center or cell that's going to make sense of that to eventually deliver a decision to a decision maker. And that today is oftentimes measured in hours, if not days. We need to move that down to seconds. So maybe you can explain to me what uh, what is a sensor in a general sense and how they are deployed and what types of information can be gathered with that? So a sensor is really anything that helps you to understand your environment. Um, this is everything from a sensor that has a camera on it that I can take a picture. It is everything from um, as sophisticated as a fifth generation fighter that is collecting all of the signals information that might be in the air but it's even down to the soldier whose boots are dirty in the dirt who understands that their environment. And so the idea is to take traditional and non-traditional, exquisite and simple sensors, take all of that information and merge it into a single picture. So for this, you know, uh, for ABMS and JADC2, you basically have to retrofit an old Air Force and a new Air Force kind of and bring it up on the same level? No, that's the good thing. Okay. We have this data there. Okay. But today, most of that data is stovepiped. It's stovepiped within a particular platform. It's stovepiped within a particular function or an organization. Mm -hmm. and, and others don't know. For instance, the Air Force may very well be able to detect the presence of a threat within the air domain, mm -hmm. but may not have the means to pass it to our maritime brothers. And so our maritime brothers are collecting the same information to understand the environment. And so this causes sensor saturation on a single point, which does not give us the totality of understanding that we need to have. Yeah, I think I've seen a little bit of that play out at Southcom when I went there. Without a doubt. Yeah. And Southcom is unique mm -hmm. because where we are talking about very sophisticated capabilities and bringing on allies and partners in a very sophisticated sense, what Air Advanced Battle Management System also does is it accounts for the lesser um, sophisticated partners and allies. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you go down into the Southcom AOR, most of their partners are fighting on WhatsApp. So how do we then factor in, there is a variety, a wide spectrum of capabilities that are out there, but we still have to operate as a single force. It's worth mentioning, the strategic advantage that the United States has is our ability to develop a coalition. And that's through allies and willing partners. No other nation in the world can build a coalition the way we can. Therefore, when we start looking at building out these advanced command and control capabilities, this decision advantage, we have to take it from the high end all the way down to the low end because we don't know where in the globe we're going to find ourselves competing for our national security interests. Wow. Okay, so what is the importance of an uh, exquisite sensor system to support the ABMS and JADC2? Well, let me, let me maybe uh, rephrase the question. Okay. As we look at sensors in the operating environment that we have in the future, 
what's changed? So today, we put very capable sensors on very large platforms and fly them in close proximity to the fight so that they can provide that closing of the kill chain capability. Everything from being able to understand the environment, to making sense of the environment, to handing that to a decision maker, and then immediately directing an asset to execute a mission. That's battle management 101. Mm -hmm. What we know today, though, is tomorrow, we can't take these big platforms and we can't fly them right up against the, um, the battlefield and expect the same level of understanding, predominantly because they're highly vulnerable. Our adversaries have spent decades understanding how we fight our war. And they know that they can't take us toe-to-toe, fighter-to-fighter, ship-to-ship, tank-to-tank. They know that the only way they're going to unravel us is they have to disrupt our ability to command and control. So they've developed the capabilities to hold these large platforms at risk. So advanced battle management of tomorrow takes that same capability, the ability to sense, and now distributes it across a wide array of sensor capabilities. Some extraordinarily exquisite. Uh, General Raymond the, from the Space Force just recently released in the media that they're working on a ground-moving target indicator capability that is space-based. Yesterday, that was on the JSTARS platform, a highly vulnerable system. Tomorrow, we're going to put that in space. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and, and of course, you guys are working closely with Space Force? With Without a doubt. Yeah. So I don't think anybody who understands warfare today or tomorrow would disagree with the fact that we cannot win without space. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, without a doubt. I just don't think most people think about space when it comes to war because it's never been a thing. If you're a student of space or a student of war, if you understand military tactics and capabilities, then you know that we have to focus on the capabilities in space and the defensive space. Mm-hmm. It's like the higher ground. It, it is. The <laughs> ultimate high ground. Yeah, the ultimate high ground. Right. Definitely. Um, can you explain why we have to get the, the data piece um, right? Oh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Can you explain why we have to get the data piece right from the beginning and what it needs to ha- what needs to happen before all the data we collect can quickly um, be collected or formatted and utilized. Right. So, so just getting it right right out the gate. Without a doubt. So let me I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bridge into that question. Okay. So our uh, the Air Force, General Brown, recently signed the Advanced Battle Management System campaign plan. This is the first ever. That lays out eight warfighting required capabilities or imperatives. And what he says in that plan is there's a lot that we have to get after, but the first thing is about sharing data. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is we can build an advanced array of sensors, but if they are all communicating in some proprietary or unique way, it becomes very difficult in order to collect, store, and process that data for a user to use. In other words, you end up having to build a wooden shoe for every sensor source, and we need to get away from that. So what we've done is we set a course in order to identify what is the best way to affect data movement and what is the best way in order to make data shareable. So movement of data. This is pipes. 
We've got to have the pipes, whether they're space-based, terrestrial-based, whatever the case may be, the waveform we may choose, we've got to be able to move the data. We have to move it to a location, so we have to store it. Oftentimes, you'll hear us talk about cloud-based storage. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to where the commercial industry has gone. The difference for us is we'll have cloud-based storage, but we'll also need to develop the tactical edge cloud-based capability. This is important because if our force is effectively cut off from the whole, we still need the parts to operate. And, and tactical edge cloud-based storage of this data will help to enable that. Second, sharing of data. Well, to share data, one, you as the user need to know it's there. If you don't know that my sensor collected the data that you need, then you don't know how to pull that data in to help shape your decision making. So this comes from the ability in order to characterize the data in a way that a disparate level of user knows how to go search and find it. Think of your Google search. Mm -hmm. The last element of that is the data has to come into a format that you can use it. So that if we're not delivering data that's proprietary or data that is locked within a particular vendor's solution, but instead is presented in, in a universal way that means something to you. If we get this right, then as we build things such as space-based ground moving target indication capability or other exquisite sensors, then they will produce a data according to that architectural standard and we don't have to continue to develop the individual solution for each sensor. So I want to just touch down on the edge connection that you were, were talking about. Is that like a buffering thing or is it more of like a firmware that's already con constantly like being updated? So when it's disconnected from the network, it, it can find its way back or uh, be able to operate without it. So, so the idea behind it is that you can take the data that you need for that location of which you operate in, mm -hmm. and you can store it and process it on the tactical edge so that you are not exclusively dependent on reachback capability. Mm -hmm. So what we want is a live exchange of that data back and forth be, um, between the edge and the rear, mm -hmm. but we also need to have the ability to have that line cut new data to continue to push into the tactical edge. Mm -hmm. And then when we reconnect the pathway, the update and refresh occurs again. Okay. So uh, the big question is, uh, do our adversaries have an ABMS or a JADC2 uh, in, in the works? There are elements of decision advantage of which our adversaries have also built out. They too understand the importance of working as an integrated force. I will tell you that the majority of the technologies and capabilities they have built is how to undermine our ability to operate as an integrated force. Not necessarily as sophisticated and resilient of a capability as we're building out. Mm -hmm. Frankly, we are so far ahead of our adversaries in how we have learned to operate as a joint force that it's going to take them a long time to catch up. But what we can't do is rest on those laurels and think they won't catch up. They have already set a course to show that they can converge and surpass us if we don't continue to evolve. So I took ABMS and JADC2 and I put them into our red flag uh, events and training out in LSY. How would that play out? Some of it you would never even see. 
Yeah. So if you were flying around in a cockpit or you were part of a ground force working out there on the range, you may never see it. Mm -hmm. Others, you will. For instance, you could be sitting in an, an, uh, a ground uh, attack vehicle. So maybe you're a tactical air control party out there helping to, to control the air fight um, against the ground forces. And you may be operating with a common operating picture that's populated with awareness that you have no idea where it came from. That information was fused, piped into you, and made sense so that you can make very accurate and timely decisions. The same may go whether you're flying in a, in a fighter aircraft, a bomber aircraft, or you're sitting back in a ground control station operating an unmanned vehicle. That level of awareness of your environment, the operators are going to see fairly quickly. But much of the acceleration of the decision-making is going to happen to the up to the point where they're taking action. And so there is a bit of an above the water line and a below the water line benefit of advanced battle management. Great. Um, so in my uh, conversation the other day, it was, uh, I was told that, you know, the other services are kind of working on their own ABMS at the same time. And the Air Force has kind of been more ambitious doing the joint um, kind of overall. Am I, am I wrong in that? And maybe you can explain that to me. Yeah, let me, let me correct that perception because sometimes I hear people with that perception. Here's the truth. So the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, first of all, we're closely partnered in our understanding of how we have to work together and work in order to enable JADC2. But each of us presented from a domain unique perspective, which means our tools and our perspectives shape a bit of how we develop the solutions. But that doesn't mean that they're not complementary. In fact, they highly overlay each other in the technologies we bring to bear. So the same way that the maritime domain is, is better connecting the subsurface, on-surface, and above-surface capabilities, so too is the air domain and the ground domain. Here's what's unique. Today, when a battalion that is on the ground or a division is advancing forward their operations center, we don't have the automated means to share understanding. But working with the Army's Project Convergence and the, and the Navy's Project Overmatch, we're building that shared understanding. Now, here's where the joint side of it comes into play. What the joint staff is doing and largely doing through the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, or the JROC, they're building out the means in order to establish some common standards and expectations on how to share that information. That's important because any one service can't develop the solution and expect the other services to find a way to adapt to it. So my next question is about leadership and like the leaders that we're going to need to see this through. Right. Um, kind of tell me about what you uh, envision for, you know, those those future leaders to make sure this comes together, this happens. Right. Um, great question. In fact, while data sharing is today's focus, human capital development is our next focus because General Brown fully appreciates that we have to get the people part of this formula right and we need to do it early. This means that we have to reconsider those attributes of um, candidates for the Air Force of which we value. We have to reconsider how are we training them, how are we developing them, our education programs, the attributes of which we value in our promotions. So what are we looking for? 
What we need is we need leaders who can operate in a highly complex and rapidly changing environment. One of the attributes of tactical edge computing or disaggregated operations is this ability to distribute decision-making. Whereas we commonly look at decisions that are made within an AOC by a CFAC, we may find ourselves disaggregated where it's the mission commander out on a um, particular strike mission that suddenly has the decision-making authority without the reachback to include a modification of their mission to maybe a different objective or different principle. In the Army's terms, and the Air Force has adopted it, we call this mission command, which is how can I push decision-making and autonomy to the lowest level possible in order to accelerate our ability to interact with our operating environment. The airmen, to operate in that environment, the skills, the knowledge, the abilities is different than what we are currently valuing today. So we have to identify those, build them into the entirety of our human capital management process so that we can start building out leaders that this is second nature to them. Definitely. I was uh, in the AOC when North Korea was shooting up uh, missiles and I got to see you know, the, the everybody go to work at the same time. And I saw an airman, he was like, I don't know, 22 years old. He was on the phone and it was, his hands were shaking. And, and it's just a lot of trust um, that has to be rapidly at a rapid fire. Yeah, I think, um, let me pick on trust in, in a good way because you're, what you just said there is really insightful. Mm -hmm. One of the things is we start to build out this command and control model, this new way of operating. It's, it's really hinges on trust. That trust is in our airmen. So when I push them decision-making authority out in the tactical edge, I have to trust that they understand my intent as a commander and that they will be able to have the tools and the authorities to execute within that intent. But trust also comes to the data. So if I have a algorithm or a machine-to-machine -machine exchange of information that delivers me a solution that may have looked at my available options and come out with a recommendation, I need to trust that data. So trust comes from a couple ways. Number one is I have to have that data protected. I need to know that the data that's used to make those, um, to, to synthesize, to help me to make those decisions is protected from nefarious manipulation. The second thing is I need to trust that those algorithms are actually making some good recommendations. And we do that through exercise and experimentation. We need to put these capabilities into our warfighters' hands as fast as possible and let them practice with them. Let them help us to shape how they operate and how they interact with them so that we can continue to improve them. We call this DevSecOps, Development, Security, Operations. It's taking the developers and the operators always with security forefront in their mind and putting them in the dirt together to work through these problem sets. To do so, we can build out trust. I bet the developers love that. They do. <laughs> they get out of the office. <laughs> they do. Um, the, the power that we have access to, mm -hmm. both within the commercial industry, but also just within our own ranks, mm -hmm. is staggering. Right. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of like the beginning of the internet for the Air Force? In a simple sense, it is. Yeah. It, it really is. And, and so, in the same way that, and um, I'll date myself, mm -hmm. I was an adult when we got cell phones out of backpacks. 
I was already in the Air Force the first time I had a personal computer. I remember when the Air Force introduced the, this idea called email, of which I was highly skeptical of. Yeah. This is my generation. The airmen and the civilians that we're bringing into the force today have only known this. They've only known powerful computing in their pocket. Mm -hmm. They've only known interconnectedness and, and the movement of data across wires at lightning speed. They're also coming to understand the frailty of when you're not discriminating in the data that you use to make your own personal decisions. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do now is this awakening that the military is going through. The commercial industry has already gone through it. And it's important to recognize our partnership with industry is largely where we're going to find our successes. It's, it's funny. It's like when the Internet first started, it's, nobody saw it as, you know, too, um, too much of a Pandora's box. But now it seems like, you know, there's so many pros and cons to rapid communication. What, right. what pros and cons do you see in the future for um, ABMS and Jetsy 2 so rapid communication depends upon two attributes. Number one is data under motion, mm -hmm. and two is data at rest. Mm -hmm. And what happens now is when we start talking about rapid communications is how do I go back to that idea of trust? How do I trust that data? How do I trust that somebody hasn't gone in and manipulated the data to manipulate my understanding? Or are they siphoning off the data in order to reduce my understanding? And so as we start looking at a operating environment where we expect every warfighter to operate at lightning speed, we have to understand that there's a great risk in the data they use to make their decisions. The second piece, fast also leads to disjointed. And so the idea that we empower the parts to operate as the whole, what's really difficult is how do we keep them operating as a whole? So if I'm a part that's aggregated and I'm executing my mission, I have some centrally organizing function there. But if I get split due to some sort of um, enemy activity that disaggregates me, I'm still expected to execute. The idea that I stay part of the whole assumes the whole hasn't changed. And then I have to reattach. During this disaggregation and reaggregation, how we maintain momentum around a unified purpose and a coherency of effort, really hard if you're working at light speeds. Are you familiar with uh, Captain Kanan? He was, uh, he's at the MIT Accelerator. He wrote the AI, T-minus T AI. I have not. I have you, okay. Uh, I, when I spoke to him, uh, he was uh, part of, uh, I think it was the Jake Joint um, Artificial Intelligence. Intelligence Center. Yeah. yeah, here, and then he moved on to the MIT Accelerator. But when I talked to him about AI and the, the beginning stages of AI here, he said it was so difficult to explain it to the stakeholders and the people that, you know, that, that really mattered that he had to take an entire year to figure out how to communicate mm -hmm. what it is. Do you have that problem with ABMS and JADC2? Without a doubt. And the reason for it is that people jump to conclusions on what it can be really before we're there. Yeah. And what we have to understand is AI is remarkable. Mm -hmm. It's still got a long ways to go. Oftentimes people will jump to a conclusion that AI means robotic warfare and, and that's, that's unethical. I ask everybody to hold off for a second. 
we're not jumping to where we're going to hit a button and execute some sort of robotic human outside of the process um, military operation. AI it also reflects in our lives in ways that some of us are comfortable with and some are not. For example, I gave my mom a meat thermometer that sits inside the oven and tells her when the meat is done. Pretty easy. Well, evidently, it feeds back to some central server that then sends her an email congratulating her on making a beautiful pork roast. She sees that as a violation of her privacy. <laughs> That's culturally some of the hurdles that we have to overcome as we start thinking of bringing in machine learning and AI into our military operations. Great. Um, so as far as new weapon systems go and maybe older ones too, um, I, I guess, do we, do we build ABMS around the weapon system or we build the weapon system around ABMS? So there's a both element to it. Ultimately, we build the idea of this interconnectedness of all the parts into a coherent whole, and we build future systems with that in mind first. And that's part of what's becoming a changing principle within our acquisition and development process. But we can't do so and leave all of our legacy systems behind. Yeah. And so we also have to figure out how do we continue to connect existing weapon systems that are going to be here for a long time? And how do we bring them in to operate as a whole? And so it's this, it's this idea of homogeneity or heterogeneity. So do I make everything homogeneous so it all looks and operates the same? Or do I accept that there are going to be heterogeneous parts, but I create the capability for them to operate as if they're homogeneous? And that's where ABMS lives. So I, I mean, like in my head, I think of the boneyard where everything is just kind of laid to rest and it's in, you know, it's in holding. Um, and then the Air Force decides to, well, we need to use these now. And so they regenerate and they fix them back up. How fast and easy would it to take something out of the boneyard, put some sensors on it and throw it up in the air? Um, as everything, it's more sophisticated than we think. Yeah. Um, so, for, for example, we use a, a SWAP um, mm -hmm. acronym, which is, do I have the space? Can I add the weight? Do I have the ability to control like air conditioning-wise? Mm -hmm. Do I have the power to run it? Yeah. Um, and you'll find that a lot of our systems were built off of um, infrastructure within the platform that doesn't support really advanced weapon systems now or sensor bases. Sensor. Can you modify them? You can. Now it becomes a cost-benefit analysis. I'll talk about capability release one. Some have been, um, it's been out in the media that the Air Force is building out a way to take fifth generation airborne tactical platforms, take the data that they have on board, pipe it back to a KC-46 that's equipped with a special pod that receives all that data and then pipes that data beyond line of sight back to a central um, node for storage and processing. So this is taking a KC-46 that is otherwise used to refuel our aircraft. It's also used as a transport aircraft. And now we're using it as a command and control node. It's that sort of thinking, that sort of modification is how we're eventually going to create this network that starts to connect the parts into the whole. So you might have answered this, and I don't know, 
because uh, uh, we're going over a lot here. What are the elements do you uh, what what elements do you plan to incorporate into the upcoming JADC2 exercises? So let me answer your question um, more specifically. What do, where is our experimentation, our exercising focus today? Mm-hmm. It's really focused on the idea of how we can better connect otherwise disconnected capabilities. I'll give you an example. Project Convergence 21. This is the Army's uh, initiative to support JADC2. Project Convergence 21 uses a number of use cases that they want to look at better information sharing. One of those capabilities is taking a fifth-gen tactical fighter and through using data sharing technologies, take that information on a missile defense mission and pipe it back to a ground unit that can then make an engagement decision. Those novel connections aren't there, but through the experimentation and exercise, and we're creating them. Another one, we're coming up and Northcom is going to run another exercise this summer where they're looking at how they can change or upgrade their command and control system to accelerate their decision in a homeland defense mission. The advanced battle management systems, we're deeply involved through our chief architect office, which is a part of our um, acquisitions community, is deeply involved in planning and executing. And they're going to bring some nascent capabilities, oftentimes software-based, in order to demonstrate their utility in an operationally demanding environment. Wow. So many moving parts for this. So much. <laughs> do you feel overwhelmed at any time? Every day. <laughs> Every single do you, day. Do you log into your email and it's just like <laughs> There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot. One of the one of the principles, so I'm going to go back to a term I'd used earlier, but I'm going to expand on a little bit. Project management mm-hmm. versus product management. So project management is a, a fairly constrained um, around um, time schedules and budgets. Uh, to, to produce a particular capability. Product management has a much broader, wider perspective. This is what General Brown and General Alvin have tasked me to do within Advanced Battle Management System is to take a product management approach. But if you were to look at my biography, you would see I've never been through any sort of product management training, development, or experience. And so what we are doing is we're taking a hard look at this idea of how we develop and execute warfighting requirements throughout the totality of our developmental process, and we're rebuilding the system. And we're using advanced battle management system as the exploratory initiative to find better ways to do business. This is enabling and vexing at the same time. It's enabling because the rule book laws, as an exception, but the rule book is largely ours to rewrite. It's overwhelming because we are interacting with the bureaucracy that is tooled for a certain way to do business. This isn't a hit against the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have to succeed with the bureaucracy, not in spite of the bureaucracy. So the duality there is how do you still retain the value-added parts of the old while at the same time exploring the new? That adds a degree of complexity that's already on top of a very complex command and control construct. Yeah. I'd imagine it can be frustrating sometimes, too, uh, trying to make it work. Um, yes. But, but oftentimes, <laughs> but I find that we do have to have a lot of the same conversations over and over again, and I don't mind. 
Because typically when I sit down with somebody who doesn't necessarily understand, it's a short conversation and then they understand. Without a doubt, the, the men and women, the military and the civilians and the contractors who make up our bureaucracy, they all want to succeed. And they, and they largely have a huge role in our success as a, as a service. And so it's not a matter of sidelining them or ignoring them. It's really a matter of pulling them into the conversation. We use a principle called an integrated development team. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a newer idea. It's a newer methodology to an old idea. And this is the best solutions are the solutions that are built out through an integrated approach rather than a stovepipe microsm approach. Mm. When you first stepped into this seat, how long did it take you to get up to speed? How long did it before you could wrap all of this stuff around your head and be able to shoot out answers left and right? I'll let you know. <laughs> um, when I first stepped into the seat, uh, what was clear to me was we were a little bit, um, we were ready for the next evolution yeah. in our institutional approach to advanced battle management system. And, and so that was a, a bit, um, enabling and encouraging because I was given a very clear charter. Spaniard, that's my call sign. Mm -hmm. um, Spaniard is do it and do it better. Number one. Two is it has to be about the warfighter. Mm -hmm. When those are your two marching orders, there's a pretty wide left and right limit there. And, and what we've done with a very close partnership with our acquisitions community particularly with the Department of Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office. Um, and we have a very tight partnership with them and we work with them every single day on how to build these ideas into reality. And then an unbelievable support that we get from the chief and the vice chief, particularly General Alvin, is makes himself available to us um, reasonably every day, but without a doubt every week. And so when you have the services senior leadership that is, is intimately involved in supportive of finding ways to succeed. Um, while the charter may have wide left and right limits, the direction we're going without a doubt, I think we're gonna achieve both those, make it better and make it warfighter centric. So the genesis of ABMS was to support acquisitions, correct me if I'm wrong. Like that was the, to, to figure out how acquisitions could all come together and, and work seamlessly. Um, so I'll take you one step backwards. You're right at one of the waypoints that we hit. Okay. One step backwards was this idea that the, the J-STARS mm. was no longer the right sensor, the right platform for future warfare. And so it started off as a recapitalization effort. Hey, what are we going to buy in order to replace the J-STARS? And oh, by the way, let's look at the AWACS also. In other words, our moving target indication capability, ground and air, is too antiquated find different. That was handed to our acquisitions community, find different. Acquisitions community looked at it and they said, you know, I think that find different shouldn't be tied to a platform anymore. And what they brought forward was this idea that commercial industry has already found a way to do things different that makes it so we can create the same capability, but without the vulnerabilities. Along that pathway, they realized the way we currently do our requirements and acquisition process is too slow. Mm -hmm. From problem identification to fielded solution, nobody typically remembers the original problem by the time they get the solution out into the field. Mm 
And so they started to really work on an agile acquisition process that is built upon a couple principles. Number one is we need to work with the small guy and the big guy out there because there's a lot of amazing innovations going in with the smaller companies. The second thing is we have to fail often. And if we fear failure or we punish failure, we're gonna end up building what we had before. Today, we're building off of, we're no longer building a platform, we're building a different style of advanced battle or battle management. We're using an agile acquisition process, and now we're looking at how we can do that throughout the whole of the enterprise. Last time I had uh, Dr. Roper in the seat, and we talked to him about uh, fail faster and uh, not being able to punish those people that failed and get them, you know, brush them off, put them back on their feet. And uh, he said it was pretty much, it was, it's easier said than done. It is. And, you know, what, what's your experience with that? Well, at the end of the day, we're paying taxpayer dollars or we're spending taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And so we have to be able to account for every dollar we spent and that it was value added. Mm-hmm. And we don't fight that. We don't, sh- we don't chagrin the fact that we're accountable for that. But sometimes failure comes at a dollar price mm-hmm. that maybe isn't always well received. And so we have to also show progress. And, and therein lies the nuanced balance between failing fast and moving fast. And so how we find that balance between the two, it really comes into our the rigor of the thinking that goes into the development of the solutions. It's not that our solutions are bad. We just have to strengthen this thinking that goes into our solutions. Now explain your function and how you um, connect with uh, the other services. You bet. So um, really uh, a high priority area for us that, so the Air Force contributes to JADC2 through the ABMS portfolio. The Army is through Project Convergence. The Navy is through Project Overmatch. We have a close partnership with those three departments so that we can share understanding on where our interests and capabilities are overlapped and where our interests and capabilities might be domain um, unique. And then in those areas of overlap, we're finding places to align our integration labs. We're finding places to align our experimentation venues so that we can grow together. Why is the joint team important to JADC2? If we don't have the joint team factored in in the beginning, and the same goes for our allies, meaning they need to be involved in the beginning, it's really easy to get far down the solution development pathway that we find ourselves back into stovepipes. And so by integrating early, what we're really taking away is the risk of the stovepipes. Can you explain how uh, the concept of JADC2 is not about hardware when talking about a joint environment. It, it is not just about hardware, but without a doubt, there's some hardware elements likely to it. So it, JADC2 in and of itself tells us very clearly, you need to create decision advantage. If you're going to be able to command and control across all domains without any seam, It then goes and looks at things such as policies. It looks at software in addition to hardware. It looks at the human enterprise. It looks at the the, um, connection between conventional and nuclear operations, because that's a seam that we have to consider also. 
And so it lays out a course and then develops an implementation plan that helps to guide and prioritize our efforts as a service. If you were to visualize the perfect scene for ABMS um, and you look at it and you're like, that perfectly, that perfectly illustrates ABMS and JADC2, what would that scene look like? You wouldn't see it. That's the strength. The strength is, is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It forces a connection with so many pathways that it's inherently resilient. It allows us to pipe understanding to any corner of the globe instantaneously. It allows us to drive the shared understanding and aha moment in the AOC in Hawaii and the AOC in Europe all at the same time. It allows Cyber Command and Stratcom to operate off of the same sheet of music at the same time. Why is it important uh, that our coalition partners be involved in JADC2? We can't do this alone. We will not fight alone. We are going to deter best, recognizing our strategic advantage comes from our allies. And what we can't do is hope to bolt them on after the fact. Second, they have some great ideas too. And they're going to help us to understand and develop solutions to a shared set of problems in ways that may elude us. Not to mention, if we're all staring at the same problem and we're all developing our own unique solution to that same problem, we're missing the main point, which is we have to remain interoperable. So we want them in with us today, now, working shoulder to shoulder through the hard part of understanding the operating environment, defining the problems, identifying solutions, and testing out and fielding those solutions. Yeah, this, that's, this question actually goes back to something we were talking about before is like, can you talk about the role of industry in helping us build relevant applications and networks? So industry has to be in with us step by step, just the same as with our allies mm -hmm. all along the way. The industry has the resources. They have the intellectual talent. They definitely have the motivation. They're extreme patriots. They want to see the security of the United States preserved. They don't want to see us go to war, and they recognize that our ability to deter is how we're going to avoid having to go to war. They, what they need to do is they need to understand the problems that we're trying to solve. We can't leave them to guess what problems we're trying to solve. It's a little bit of the principle of bring me a rock. No, bring me a different rock. We don't want to put industry in that, that position, and we do so by keeping them outside the conversation. We've made a very deliberate effort to create a venue once a quarter that we bring industry together and we share with them exactly where we're at. We are also going to great lengths to ensure that when we communicate out the problems that we need to solve, we do so in an unclassified, widely distributed manner so that we're not just bringing the big industry partners, but we're also bringing the small industry partners that oftentimes have unique solutions that we otherwise wouldn't consider. Now, as this uh, ABMS expands and uh, goes uh, into the future, do you see it being um, creating new jobs for the Air Force, maybe in new career fields, or is it just going to be high, handled by the cyber folks and the IT folks and that? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. We've created the 13 Oscar career field already. Mm -hmm. 
My sense is a lot of what we're going to need is inherent within that career field. But I do suspect that there might be some changes in other career fields as maybe their role in environment changes. But we haven't really unpackaged that human capital side of it yet. But I suspect that we're going to have to come to terms with answering that question. Great. All right, so into the cloud we go. What are the goals and benefits of a cloud-based data stream? Well, the, the goal is that you allow information to aggregate in a manner of which is accessible by subscribers. The Space Force has already created the unified data library that works off of this principle. What the real benefit of it is we get away from what we call on-premise storage, on-premise processing. There's a couple reasons why that doesn't work as well as, as the cloud-based. Number one is that particular location has all the information and the processing ability. And if that particular location is isolated, then nobody else can have access to it. The second piece to it is the simple ability to upgrade our software. We know that we're under cyber attack every single day. We see it in the news today with the fuel crisis on the Southeast coast. So uh, those cyber um, aggressors are coming after these systems. And one of the best defenses we have is the ability to conduct software updates in order to shore up vulnerabilities that we identify. When you have an on-premise storage and processing, we have to develop the fix. We have to mail the fix out to you. Sometimes a technician has to come and upload the fix. Maybe we have to bring a system down for some period of time while they upload the fix and bring it back up. That time frame is not nearly as responsive as it needs to be. When you put it into the cloud, we can fix it in a matter of hours as opposed to weeks or months. Think of it in the same way that you're, you probably have a smartphone, a personal smartphone, and you'll get the updates to the operating system on those smartphones, and they come at you quite frequently. It's the same sort of capability that we can build into our command and control systems when we enable a cloud-based um, storage and processing. And everybody's wondering how secure is it? How can you hack it? Without a doubt. Um, uh, can you hack it? I would, I would be remiss to ever say a hacker couldn't somehow navigate some roadblock. Mm -hmm. I do know that the National Security Agency has some of the single most talented minds that our nation can produce that are around making it very difficult for our adversaries to get at our information. But what we do know is we oftentimes find vulnerabilities that we otherwise didn't recognize. And so could it be hacked? Probably. But through our active defense and being very responsive, then we can mitigate the risk of um, if an, an adversary identifies a vulnerability. Is there any disinformation about the ABMS system, you know, people wrong perspective and stuff uh, that would you would like to just put a quash to? I would say that there's a perception at times that ABMS is not factoring in the needs of the war fight today. And I will say that that is not the case. Mm -hmm. It is very much baked around what our war fighters need. So we've done this in two very important ways. Number one is if you look at the campaign plan, it's actually built around our warfighters' understanding of what they need to succeed in this highly complex environment. So if you begin by the practitioners and understanding what the practitioners need, you begin with a, with a strong foundation. 
The second place is as we do our analysis of the areas that we need to prioritize our effort, our analysis is based upon warfighter needs. And we do that in three ways. First, we look at the current body of effort to get after today data sharing, and we identify where that body of effort might be thin in its focus, i.e., are we all looking at the same spot or are we looking across the whole of the problem set? Second, as we develop use cases, we have a use case for the Homeland Defense Mission through the lens of NORTHCOM. We have a use case for the European theater through the lens of UCOM and a use case for the Pacific theater through the lens of PACOM. Those use cases allow us to identify the kill chain that we want to accelerate and we process map that and identify particular war fighting functions that are a bit archaic and we can modernize with some of the technologies that we've talked about today. Now that feedback that you got, and you're saying that uh, it doesn't support the warfighter, how did you come about that? Is that something that you've heard from somebody else or how did that come about? Why do you feel that way? So initially when we started on this journey of advanced battle management system and we shifted it from being a, just a JSTARS AWACS replacement to a more revolutionary look at battle management, not everybody necessarily understood that shift. And so what happened was the parts were moving in different directions within the broader enterprise. And they were no longer starting from a shared foundation. And so their conversations were becoming strained. One of the reflections of that strained understanding was the, the Air Force ABMS initiative is no longer about warfighting. And so really what it came down to is re-communicating what ABMS is, what our priorities are, and then building the warfighter voice more directly into how we prioritize our efforts to help to, to close that seam of understanding. So ABMS, pretty much in a nutshell, is the answer to fighting a modern war uh, for the future. ABMS is a part of fighting a modern war, and what ABMS does is it delivers decision advantage. Now, there are a lot of other parts of a modern warfare that we still have to continue to mature. For example, maturing our ability to sense with advanced sensors that are, can account for over-the-horizon threats that we didn't have yesterday, but we're going to have tomorrow, such as hypersonics. It's the idea that space is no longer a, a sanctuary in and of itself. It's the idea that the homeland is no longer a sanctuary in and of itself. And so we still have to continue to modernize sensors. We have to modernize platforms. We have to modernize weapon systems. ABMS is going to make it so that you can understand your environment, make sense of your environment, and then you can direct an action. So your expectation level for getting ABMS to come together as a full concrete from concept to uh, reality, how high, you know, how high is your... <laughs> Extraordinarily high. My expectation is unbelievably high because our chief has set it very high because the joint force needs it to be very high. But we're going to get there. Where we were two months ago and where we are today, it, the, the landscape has already changed in, in such a dramatic way. And as we continue to grow and mature in our development, it, it's only going to get better. We're going to see capabilities delivered into warfighters' hands in, within a few short months. Capability Release 1 is a great example as we're prototyping that. And we're going to watch that growth in capabilities as, as grow exponentially over a short period of time. 
And that will do it for this episode of At Altitude. My thanks to Andrew Breeze and Brigadier General Valencia for shedding light on the Air Force's contribution to making joint all-domain command and control a reality. Yet Altitude podcast is a production of Airmen Magazine, located at Defense Media Activity at Fort Meade, Maryland. You can find more of our stories, photos, videos, and podcasts at airmen.dodlive.mil. You can also look for us on Facebook, iTunes, Divids, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.